You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. All right, we're going to read Daniel 8, 1 through 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal, and I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, it came up last. I saw the were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over to the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Good morning. Uh, We are in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 8, as you know. Before I get there, just want to just reiterate uh, our baptism service. I, I, the first service is where I will preach uh, my sermon on Daniel next week. I'm not going to do that in the second service next week because we've got... I think like six or seven people are being baptized. So some of them are going to share their story. They want to share their story. I will, I'll, I'll say a few things uh, related to the gospel. But uh, the second service is going to be primarily our baptism service. So just, just so you're aware, that's what's happening next, next week. So a little different than, than normal Sundays, but that's happening. If you're interested in being baptized, Today's the last day you can sign up for that. Uh, if you can sign up on the sign-up sheet, that would be great, and I'll give you a call, and we can talk about it. All right. So uh, uh, last week I had told you, uh, my good friend, uh, if you haven't been tracking on Facebook and, and seeing the updates, my good friend Mike 
uh, fell out of, a, out of a truck. It was going about 10 miles an hour um, and uh, fell directly on his head and fractured, uh, fractured his skull, suffered multiple injuries, I believe, in his brain. He was bleeding in the brain, uh, fractured his vertebrae, broke, uh, fractured three ribs. Uh, he was in critical condition. I found that out right before I came up to preach last Sunday in this service. And I just put out a prayer request, uh, got it on the prayer chain for our network of churches as well. And uh, Mike is doing a lot better. So uh, he is alert and aware. They actually had him stand yesterday for a few seconds. He's just not, he's not able to walk. Uh, he, uh, they took the feeding tube out yesterday. So he's starting to, I think he had some chicken broth last night. And uh, agitated. Mike, Mike is, well, he's a former Marine, and he cannot sit still, and so that's agitating to him. Um, so Mike is Mike, so that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, I was encouraged by that. Um, so, yep, amen. So that's an update on Mike, but I was reflecting on the last four months or so of uh, the life of, uh, you know, our, our lives, uh, the Miller family's lives, and just, there's a poem that I have gone back to time and time again. I've used it uh, probably a dozen times. I've cited it in sermons that I've preached, but it's been something that has just been near and dear to my heart. Every time things just seem a bit chaotic. It's, um, and I was thinking about this. So, like in the last four months or so, I was at the bedside of my of our oldest son at Children's Hospital because he was dealing with COVID and on oxygen. Shortly after that, my mom uh, contracted a bacterial infection and she was in critical condition. And that's when I flew out to New, uh, to Florida, not knowing she was going to live. And then last week I got this call about my very good friend Mike being in critical condition. I shared this poem with, with Nikki, his wife, and a few of his friends that I talked to uh, last week as well. It's by William Cooper. It's, it's a hymn titled, well, it was a poem titled God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and it was made into a hymn. But these are, here are some of the lyrics. I want to share them with you. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Now there are other verses to this to this poem, but I, as I was reading through Daniel and just reflecting on the last four or so months of, 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 of my life and those, those who I hold dear to my heart, uh, I, I, as I read Daniel, this poem came to mind. It is not an easy vision that Daniel had. Now, I just want to give you a heads up. The difference between dreams, prophetic dreams, and prophetic visions is simply this. With dreams, you're sleeping. With visions, you're awake. And... Um, and so Daniel, in the, you know, Daniel chapter 7 is a dream. Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 8 is a vision. He has this vision, and it wigs him out, literally wigs him out. In verse 27, if you have your Bible and you're looking, he said, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. 
That just wigged them out. Um, there have been a few, mo- a, few, a few times in my life, not a lot, there have been a few times in my life where I had either a prophetic dream or a vision. And I just, I didn't say this in the first service, I want to say it now. Anytime that happens, you've got to measure it against the Word of God. Don't just take whatever dream you had as being like, more authoritative than the Word of God. Measure it against the Word of God. But there, the, I, there have been times, like the one time I had a prophetic dream, I literally woke up and I was disturbed and bothered by it and God had spoken through that dream. I had a vision. I didn't know what to do with it. I was afraid to tell my wife about it. But just give you, I do believe, uh, it was a vision. I was actually on a plane. It just has nothing to do with Daniel, but just give you, I do believe that God speaks this way still. I was on a plane, and I was pastoring Northwest Baptist Church. Those who know me, most of you know me, you know I am an analytical thinker. I am, I think, a theologian more first, and then pastor, vice versa. Um, but I had this dream, and it was a tree. It was a dead tree. It was chopped down, and in its place grew a living tree. And his voice said, "That's what needs. To, that's what's going to happen with Northwest Baptist Church." And I said, uh, "I don't know what to do with that." <laughs> and um, and it was like I was going to close down Northwest Baptist Church, and I was going to plant another church in its place. And that's exactly what I did. But um, I was afraid to tell Roy Ma about it. Daniel has this dream, and immediately he's like, he's afraid. At first, he was afraid to tell anybody about it, or he didn't want to say anything about it. And it took him, I guess, some time for him to write it down and to record it, because we're told it was the third year of Belshazzar. So, so there are I don't know how many years left before the Persian Medan Persian Empire came into Babylon and killed Belshazzar. So this, so so Belshazzar and Babylon were still in existence when chapter eight. The vision in chapter 8 took place, and Daniel was afraid to mention it, and then he finally wrote it down, and we have it in, in the scriptures. If I could pick one passage in Daniel that I think thums up the theme of Daniel, and I've already cited this verse a few times in this series, it's uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. In this case, Daniel gets his vision, and it's horrific about what's going to happen. It's troubling. But in chapter 7, Daniel was reminded that God is on the throne. He is the ancient of days, and light dwells with him. Daniel recognizes that. He even, talk, he even praised God for that in chapter 2, that God reveals deep and hidden things because light dwells with him. Cooper, William Cooper, understood this. And I mean, just think about these words in his poem, deep and unsearchable minds of never-failing skill. Like, I, I, any of you, when you go to bed, sleep with the lights off? You ever get up to use the bathroom and hit something on the way to the bathroom? Um, yeah, I am not very skilled in darkness when walking, right? But deep in unsearchable minds, in darkest dark, and blackest of, uh, of nights, in deep and unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he, God, treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what, what things are troubling you right now. Um, 
but God is on his throne. He is governing the universe. He is in control. And, and so Daniel chapter 8 is a testimony uh, to that. So Daniel has this dream or this vision. He has this vision, and he, unlike, unlike like Daniel chapter what, 4 and Daniel chapter 2, there are only two kingdoms mentioned here, the, per, the Medo-Persian kingdom and the empire of Greece. And, and in this vision, he sees a ram, he sees, he sees a, a, a goat, and the ram has a horn, it has two horns, one horn shorter than the other. That represents the lopsidedness of the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persian Empire eventually you know, swallowed up the Mede part of it and became the Persian Empire. And then this goat charges after the, the ram and basically destroys the ram, representing uh, the empire of Greece under Alexander the Great. Critics of Daniel will say Daniel must have been written way after or sometime after uh, Alexander the Great and the Empire of Greece. And the reason why they say that, you want to know why? Because they can't understand how a book like the Bible can be supernatural. That God speaks to his people. Daniel existed and lived 200 years before Alexander the Great. At least 200 years before Alexander the Great. And so he has this vision and it includes these two empires and uh, my guess is that when, when the empire of the Medo or the Medo-Persian Empire came in and destroyed Babylon and or, or took over Babylon and, and killed Belshazzar, my guess is that Daniel didn't live much longer after that. Like he was an old man when that happened. Maybe he lived another ten, maybe fifteen years. The Persian Empire existed much longer than that. And um, and so Daniel has this vision and he doesn't know what to do with it. He, he, he was you know, perplexed by it. And in verse 15, we learn that, uh, that God sent the angel Gabriel in verse 16 to help him understand the vision. Which I'll get back to, to Gabriel in a second, but you know who Gabriel is, right? He's the same angel that announced the birth of Jesus to Mary. Mary, you're pregnant. You're going to give birth to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, like that person. Um, the person that Daniel chapter 7 talked about, you're going to be his mom. Like, we, Mary didn't know what to do with that. She's like, wow, uh, this is crazy. How, how could this be? Because I'm a virgin. It's like, well, easy. The Holy Spirit's going to impregnate you. Okay. Um, wrap your mind around that one. And so, so uh, we'll talk about that like, towards the end of this. But what I want to focus on uh, and talk about is I want to talk about the rise of empires very briefly because we already talked about the Medo-Persian Empire and the Empire of Greece, but I want to say a few things about those. And then uh, I want to look at three kings. There are three kings. Uh, two of them are, are mentioned in Daniel. The other one is kind of in the shadows of Daniel chapter 8, and I want to talk about him as well. And, and my whole point, my whole goal of this is to encourage you because it is so easy when you're going through trials and, 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 and you're suffering and you feel like, man, I am in the middle of this ocean called suffering. I'm treading water. I'm not sure I can stay afloat anymore. I want to encourage you that God, that God is sovereign. He's on the throne. He governs the universe. And, and we see that in chapter 8. That even in the midst of some horrible things, even in the midst of evil empires, God was working. He was working. The Medo-Persian Empire was led by King Cyrus, I believe the second, 
Um, and uh, eventually, uh, the Persian Empire kind of overtook the Mede Empire, like I said, the Mede, the Mede part of the empire. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Xerxes. Uh, you probably heard of him. Uh, how many of you have ever seen the movie 300? Okay, wow, holy cow. All right, more than I expected. Um, so, like, something like that. I mean, it was Hollywood sensationalized it, but he was not a really, he was not a kind dude. In the, in the context of the, of the Persian Empire, you have three books in the Bible that take place during that time period. Esther, that is not a Sunday school to, for little children's story. Like, Esther, she was the wife of this Persian emperor. He had other wives, too. Um, and then you had Ezra, who God raised up, because uh, one of the things about the Persian Empire is they, you were free to go back, I guess, to your, to your hometown under their empire. Many Jews, I guess, decided to do that. Some decided to stay in Persia. I have a friend whose family lineage can be traced all the way back to Persia. When I was first introduced to him, he, I was introduced to him as... <laughs> a Persian-Iranian Jewish Christian. I'm like, wow, that's a mouthful. Um, he, he, he grew up in Iran, uh, fled to the United States under, you know, when, when things were getting really bad in Iran in the, I guess, the 80s, and then wound up hearing about the gospel when he got here and placed his faith and trust in Jesus. Anyway, so, so Nehemiah and Ezra, Ezra built the temple, rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem that Babylon destroyed, he, built, he rebuilt it, and then later on, Nehemiah came along under the, the, uh, the blessing of the Persian Empire and said, you can, you can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He did that. Um, the crazy thing and exciting thing in my brain about all that is that God was in the midst of preserving the Hebrew people to make it possible for Jesus to be born. Like, there was a plot to completely annihilate the Hebrew people. And, and Mordecai said to Esther, you know, you exist for such a time as this. I know life hasn't been pleasant for you, Esther, and, but, but you need to speak to the king about this. Like, you need to stand up on behalf of your people. And she did. And, um, and God intervened through Esther. All this, in the midst of an evil, ugly empire, God was moving preserving his people. Um, and then you have this, this, this ram, or after the ram, you have this, this goat. What's the deal with a goat? Why would you have a goat represent your, your country? <laughs> well, here's the crazy cool thing about all that. There is this myth that the, that the, 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 the Greeks you know, believed, and, and whether it's a myth or a true story, who knows, I don't know, but it, but it was a story that they cherished nonetheless. And, and in this ancient myth, or according to this ancient myth or this story, some guy by the name of Carinus, uh, I believe is how you pronounce his name, wanted to find his own kingdom, so he visited the oracle of Delphi to get advice. And this is what, she, this is what the oracle told him. You should find your kingdom where you find plenty of game and domestic animals. So this guy and his entourage went and looked for this place where he would build his kingdom, and he came across this green patchy land, I guess, or this green land, and he saw, what did he see? A herd of goats, which blows my mind. God used the power of story to, to, to remind Daniel and to remind later generations that it isn't individuals, it's not kings, and it's not empires that 
affect the course of history. It is God himself. He does it. That he is pulling the strings. He alone. And he's able to use evil and, and, and the, the evil intentions of the human heart to accomplish his purposes. I, I hold on to the reality, to the fact, with, with everything I got, that God is in the business of even, even taking what is ugly. He can take what is ugly and evil and turn it around and make it something beautiful. If you don't believe me, consider the cross of Christ, the ugliest thing I think ever happened in human history. God turned it around and made it into something beautiful, right? And so that's uh, the rise of, uh, of empires. So this, this center horn, this middle horn, is, it was represented, I believe, uh, Alexander the Great. So I'm going to talk about these three kings. The first is Alexander the Great. He's the horn in the middle, in between the goat's eyes. That's why liberal scholars and critics don't think Daniel was written until after Alexander the Great. I beg to differ. God is alive. He speaks through his people. And so Alexander the Great was a general under his father, Philip II. He succeeded his father after his father was assassinated in 336 B.C. In 334 B.C., Alexander invaded uh, the Persian Empire and eventually stripped the empire of its power through a series of conquests that lasted for about 10 years. Within a span of 13 years, he conquered the known world. He, uh, his desire was to Hellenize it, to spread you know, the, the Greek culture. Um, as a result of him doing that, you had, by the time Jesus was born, a, 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 the Western civilization, or in some parts of the East, Eastern civilization, who uh, spoke a similar language, making it possible for the news about Jesus' birth to be communicated to different people groups. Anyway, so there's a story shared by the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. Anybody hear of him before? Right? Josephus uh, was not a Christian. He was a historian. And he, I think he lived up until, I think, 90 AD. Okay? He shares a story that, again, critics uh, of the Bible say, no, I don't think Josephus is telling the truth or he's fabricated something or he just or it was whispered down the lane and he's just repeating you know, this. I think what he shared is pro probably happened. I think it makes sense that it happened. And what he said happened was this, that Alexander the Great apparently had, a, 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 with his approach of taking over the known world and, and going, through Jeru or going through Israel, on his way to the temple or to Jerusalem, uh, it's, I think it was in Macedonia, he had, a, he had a dream or a vision, and in that dream, or I think it was a dream, in that dream, he had, it was a, this, this guy wearing purple garment, like purple with white garment, and um, that person in his dream spoke to him that he, is to, that he was to uh, overthrow and conquer Persia. So he had that dream. What Alexander didn't know, that Josephus also records, is that sometime before Alexander made his way to Jerusalem, God also spoke to the high priest of the temple that Ezra built um, and communicated to him that this king is going to come. You have no reason to fear. What I want you to do is wear your priestly garments when, when he approaches, and the men, 
you clothe them in white garments, and you open the gates and present yourself before him. Like, so he, he did that. And so as Alexander made, got, I guess, closer to the temple or Jerusalem, he saw this high priest who was dressed in the same manner, same person that he dreamt about. So he got, he, uh, the story goes that he rode up or, or got off his horse and walked up to the high priest to talk to him. And, um, and basically, the result of that was religious freedom for the Jews. And if, he, if, the, if any uh, Hebrew male wanted to serve in his army, that Hebrew uh, can continue to worship his Hebrew God, that he would not be forced to worship the gods of Greece. And, um, and there was a, one of the generals asked Alexander... Why are you being so nice to these people? And this is what Alexander the Great said, according to Josephus. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit, when I was at Dion in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea and would give me dominion over the Persians. That's why. And so the story goes, Josephus continues to share that. Then the high priest said, hey, I have something to show you. Let me show you one of our prophets by the name of Daniel. And he read for him Daniel chapter, well, it would be our chapter 8. There were no chapters back then. Read for him that portion in chapter 8. And he said, you are the horn that's going to destroy Persia. Which emboldened, apparently, Alexander the Great to do his thing. Now, also in the story... Josephus shares that Alexander then made a sacrifice in honor of the Hebrew God. So Josephus, who was a pi apparently a pious Jew, would, like, it, it is not endearing to, sh to share a story where a pagan worshiping emperor who does not worship your God decides to make a sacrifice in honor of your God while never committing his life to that God. That's why I believe Josephus' story has credibility to it. Regardless, God said, there's going to be an empire. That empire will eventually be Greece. The, the emperor of that empire will be a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. He will, he will lead uh, his armies to conquer the known world, and there will be a language as a result that everybody will know for a purpose. And that purpose is the same angel who, who interpreted the vision for Daniel will be the same angel who will share the good news that a Savior was born, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's King number two. King number, or no, that's King number one. King number two is a guy by the name of Antiochus IV. Any of you hear of him? So this is another reason why Scott, uh, critics of the Bible think that, man, no, Daniel couldn't have been written before Greece because, well, because it's talking about... Antiochus the fourth. One third of Daniel chapter eight is addressing this guy, Antiochus the fourth, and or about one third. And um, who was he? He was definitely no friend of the Hebrew people. He's the guy that all antichrist or that the the antichrist is compared to in the New Testament. It's that guy, Antiochus the fourth. Uh, wanted to Hellenize 
the known world and every place that did not worship the gods of Greece, he wanted to be sure that they, wound up, that they would worship the gods of Greece. Well, that posed a problem for, for, um, for the Hebrew people. And so one of the things Antiochus is known for is the horrible persecution he was responsible for of the, of the Hebrew people. As a result of Antiochus IV, and when, you know, when he finished doing what he did to Jerusalem, which I'll tell you about in a second, he, um, you know, he had, I guess, one of his generals or whatever to kind of finish up stuff. That's where you get the Maccabean Revolt, and you get Hanukkah as a result of that. So there, there's history there. So Antiochus IV... Uh, in verse 9, is the guy who, that we're told that grew exceedingly great toward the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. What's the glorious land? Israel. And, um, and so uh, verse 8 is a foreshadowing of, of him, and Antiochus is a model of the eventual Antichrist that will come someday later. Daniel chapter 7 talks about this future Antichrist. Daniel chapter 8 is talking about Antiochus the fourth who is a type of Antichrist. And later on in Daniel chapter 8, when, when the angel Gabriel interprets the vision for Daniel, we read these, verse, these words in verse 23. You can read it in your Bible. The words will not be on the screen. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, will arise or shall arise. His power shall be great, but no... But not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken. But by no human hand, meaning he's going to die, but not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So what did Antiochus IV do? Well, he made his way towards uh, Israel, found, marched on into Jerusalem. It is said that at least he was responsible for at least killing 40,000 Jews within the span of three days. Um, he marched into the temple. He set up an idol of Zeus. He also brought with him a pig. So pig is considered very unclean. And he sacrificed the pig on the altar in the temple. Not a nice guy. It is said that the way he died, he developed some type of bowel disease I've read also that some say it was some type of infection of worms. Either way, sounds pretty horrible to me. Um, and uh, he, the stench as a result of his illness, his sickness, was so bad that not even he himself could stand the stench. And then he died. You know, when I read that story, you know what it sounds like to me? God said, okay, you're gonna per you, want you wanted to persecute and pursue my people? I'm going to fill your belly with worms or I'm going to fill your bowels with a disease and this is how you're going to spend the last days of your life. And he died. He died. Um, but, again, even in his wickedness and evil scheming, Antiochus IV was used by God to accomplish his purposes. 
Antiochus wanted everybody to be Hellenized. He wanted them to worship other gods. He also wanted them to be able to, you know, to speak the same language. He was a fierce king. He was horrible. But God, I believe, used him nonetheless and then judged him, which leads me to the third king. The third king is Jesus. Like I, I, you just can't escape the fact that Gabriel is commissioned to interpret this dream for Daniel. That these two empires played a significant part in, in, in history to make it possible for Jesus to be born on that first Christmas Eve or that first Christmas night. That Gabriel is the one that announced that. That, that through the Persian Empire, God was preserving, you know, preserved his people. Through the Empire of Greece, God was still, still preserved his people and the line of the king. Jesus had to be born in the line of Judah. And, and, and so, in order for Daniel chapter 7 to be fulfilled, that this Son of Man would come, God had to preserve his people, and he did. There's this passage in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which I believe was written probably sometime during the Persian Empire. Um, and the words will be on the screen. But this is what all the Hebrew people longed for. And we still long for this today. It's describing the time when Jesus will come again. For behold, the day is, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And so, hundreds of years after Alexander the Great died, he died at the age of 33, just like the Bible said he would, that that horn was broken. And, uh, and hundreds of years after Antiochus IV sacrificed a pig that the Bible calls an abomination, Gabriel visited the young teenage girl by the name of Mary, right? We know the story. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him na his name Jesus, for he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That's Daniel chapter 7. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be what? No end. There will be no end. And then later on, the angel announced to shepherds, he said to them, Fear not, for our, behold, I bring you good news for, you know, of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Caesar Augustus claimed to be the Savior of the world. Gabriel said, I believe it was Gabriel that announced it to the shepherds. Gabriel said, uh, fact-checked, actually, the Savior of the world is Jesus. And you'll find him in a manger. And um, I, I can't get, by, get past the fact that in Daniel chapter 8, we're introduced to a ram, a goat, but the one who has the final say is the Lamb of God. He is the one who has the final say. 
Jesus, the Lamb, who is also the Lion of Judah, who conquers, who, who's, who's conquered sin, conquered the grave, and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. I said earlier that Antiochus IV is the guy who is, who is looked back upon as the, as the model Antichrist, you know, so whoever, the, the Antichrist that I believe is coming in the future will be like Ant, Antiochus IV, probably worse, but definitely like him in, in many ways. Jesus warned us, warned us of, of a day that, that I believe is still coming. And, um, and I said this at the beginning of the sermon series. The reason why there are passages in the Bible that talk about things that are coming, that's called eschatology, okay? That's what theologians call it is to shape our ethics the way we live our lives today. Like Daniel chapter 8 is not written to go hide in a cave somewhere. Daniel chapter 8 is written to compel us to engage the mission of God. And, um, and so Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 24, if you've got your Bible, in verse, uh, the words will not be on the screen, uh, verse 15, he said, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet of Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the, the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. And he, go, he continues, he said, you know, but, but false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the, sun, the coming of the Son of Man. And then he goes on to say, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Like, is that not good news? Like, I know it's Father's Day, and, you, you know, I, I'm, I don't do, like, Father's Day sermons, and I don't do Mother's Day sermons. I feel like the best way I can serve you is just point to the king, Point to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Dads, I will say this to you, that the best way you can serve your family is not how many things you participate in. All those things are great. Your best gift that you can give to your children, to your spouse, to your grandchildren, to your nephews, to your community, is to show them Jesus. To show them Jesus. Because what are you going to do when you're at the bedside of your son who's having a hard time breathing, what are you going to do when you find yourself at the bedside of your mom, not sure she's going to live? What are you going to do when, you're, when, when your closest, one of your closest friends is, is in critical condition? What are you going to do? Share memories? <laughs> no, you point them to Jesus. 
And, and if you find yourself in a situation where you're just desperate and you just don't know what to do, because there's nothing that feels worse than being a dad when you can't help your son, you can't help your wife, and there's nothing you can do to lift their suffering, is that you hold on to Jesus. Like That's why Daniel chapter 8 is in our Bibles. Hold on to him. He, you know, life might not make sense at the moment, you may wonder, where is God in this? And you've got to preach the gospel to your own heart in those moments and remind yourself that God, that God is on the throne. He's the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. And the Son of Man is Jesus who will set up his kingdom and it will endure forever, forever, and ever. And he is the one who told you and he told me, he promised you and he promised me that even if we die, not a hair on our head will perish. And that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. No, no sword, no persecution, no nothing. Cancer, COVID, whatever you think you know, threatens your life or how, whatever you feel threatens your life today, none of that, none of that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus the what? Lord. He's the king. He's the king. And... Um, I think that's the greatest gift that you can give your community. That's the greatest gift you can give your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews. William Cooper concluded his uh, famous poem with these words. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break, and blessings on your head. Listen, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I see, I see behind the frowning providence of Daniel chapter 8, I see the smiling face of God. I, I can hear, I can hear the angels just, saying, even though we can't hear, you couldn't hear them, right? Daniel couldn't hear them. And, and, and Gabriel was only permitted to say so much, but I, I can almost hear them saying to each other, you just wait. You just wait. When that evening comes and that first cry is heard by the Savior who is Christ the Lord, you just wait. And as Jesus lived his life and the devil and, and the demons trembled in his presence, and he lived the perfect life and went to the cross. Satan thought, oh, at least I can hurt him. I can hear the angel saying, you just wait. You just wait. There is a tr another triumphant cry coming. You just wait. And then Jesus cried out, what? It is, what? Finished. And he breathed his last and he died in your place and in my place on the cross. He was taken down from the cross. He was put in a borrowed tomb because he didn't need to stay there too long, right? He was put in a borrowed tomb, and I could hear the demons, you know, chuckle, not knowing what was going to happen, thinking, yeah, maybe there's victory. I could hear Pilate maybe saying to his wife, man, that was unfortunate what happened to Jesus. But you can hear the angels saying, you just wait. You just wait. Three days. Just give it three days. And then on the third day, the stone was moved and Jesus Christ 
arose. Amen? He arose. He arose. And he talked to the disciples, and he said to them, listen, I am going to go now, but I will come back in the same manner that I am going. I will return. And when I do, you just wait. You just wait. I am going to balance the scales of justice. I am going to make all that is wrong with this world right. I am going to make all things new. And so we wait. And how does Revelation end? With the Apostle John crying out, saying on, a, <laughs> on an island called Patmos, in exile, a man who suffered much, longing for Jesus to come, and his final plea was, come, Lord Jesus, come. I got news for you, brothers and sisters. He's coming. He's coming. And I can't wait. Can you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel promise. Thank you for the promise that Jesus is coming. Thank you for our guarantee that is seen in an empty tomb. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.